Recovery Elevator, episode 39. And I, I was on this constant sort of hangover that, that I just couldn't shake. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker app on my phone, I have been sober for one year, two months, and five days. Today at Recovery Elevator, I am anxious. And the reason why, drum roll, here we go, I have no clue. I am anxious because I have anxiety. What I used to do when I had anxiety with these uncomfortable feelings in the past, I used to just drink them away. But today is going to be different because I'm just going to feel that anxiety and let it be there. And it is okay. I can still do this podcast even though I'm anxious. Anxious for no particular reason. And I am accepting that because acceptance is the answer. I'm just an anxious person at times, but I'm not going to drink those feelings away. I'm just going to feel them and let those feelings run their natural course. All right. On the podcast episode 39, we've got a good one here today for you. The interviewee for today is named Douglas, and he has an amazing project called Hello, My Name Is. And basically, part of his recovery portfolio is he is painting faces of recovery. That's right. We are all warriors in recovery, and we've got faces. A lot of times we hide those faces due to reasons that we feel like we should be anonymous, but no. We should be proud. We are warriors. And Douglas, it's amazing what you do. The topic for today is signs of an alcohol relapse. But before we get into that, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. So I said before on a previous podcast, in fact, I think I had a whole topic of the podcast episode, that a relapse happens way before that first drink. And honestly, Recovery Elevator, today, just today, I can say with full conviction, I am far away from that first drink. I can't imagine anything right now that could happen in my life that could be so bad or so good that would cause me to drink. Now, you might have just heard that last part and hear me say, so good. What does that really mean? Well, as alcoholics, or especially myself, I would drink when things were bad, and I would also drink when things are good. I'd want to celebrate those successes in life, which we should, but I would celebrate those with a drink. That's the whole cheers mentality. Cheers, brost, salud, whatever you may say. That's right. When things good happen in my life, I sometimes have that urge to drink. So having said that, today, I'm far away from taking that first drink. However, I am not far away from making those decisions or taking those small actions that lead me down the path toward that first drink. Now, outside looking in, these small, minute details appear just that. Minute, they're small, they might not seem like a big deal, But every little action slowly takes me down that path to eventually, okay, I'm going to take that drink. Because I still truly believe that that relapse happens way before you actually pop that can of Budweiser and start chugging it. So here are some things that I have noticed. And I've had to put work into this to noticing them. Because we all know our blind spots. And a lot of times, I don't want to know my blind spots. 
I don't want to look at these very small, minute details and say, wow, Paul, we have a lot of room for improvement because if we don't improve these things, then eventually we are going to go down that road for a drink. My first one is my routine. If I get off my routine for more than a couple days in a row, my body cycle gets out of whack and it's slowly downhill after that. Number one, just sleeping in. Sure, there's the occasional day where you got to reward yourself and say, all right, I'm not getting up at the alarm clock today, but I try to get up before 6 a.m. every single day. It's not fun. In fact, it's terrible. A lot of times I've had to put my alarm clock on the other side of the room just to force myself. I have to get out of bed to stop that terrible barking noise that comes out of my phone. And then that's when the schedule starts with my routine. Right after that, I drink a lot of water because in the morning time, that's when your body is the most dehydrated. I read for 10 minutes. I try to do 10 minutes of workout. I walk my lovely standard poodle Ben outside. I see the beautiful Montana sunrise. And this in my routine has become the most serene part of my day. And waking up at 10 a.m., 11 a.m., sometimes noon when I was drinking, not even able to get out of bed because of the anxiety, the depression, the guilt from my addiction to alcohol caused me never even to experience that gorgeous Montana sunrise. Another warning sign that I got to keep in check that's going to lead me down that road is my diet. And no, this is not a six-week fad low-carb diet or a yo-yo diet where after the diet, I'm just going to pack on all the LBs that I lost. This is my full lifelong diet. Principles like a three-to-one vegetable to fruit ratio. I eat a lot of fish. I don't eat a lot of red meat. And then there's that fast food thing. I got out of a movie the other night and my buddy was like, hey, let's go to Taco Bell. I actually... It might have been my idea, but we went to Taco Bell. I ordered these things called cinnamon sticks, which are probably the best invention that Taco Bell has ever come up with. Went through the line, paid, ate my tacos, reached the bottom of the bag, realized the cinnamon sticks weren't there. I was like, you know what? It's like a dollar twelve. This is a good divine thing that just happened to you. Nope. I got back in that long queue of cars, went back in and said, hey, here's my receipt. You know, I, I didn't really get my cinnamon twists. Could I please get them? Got them. And I wanted to go back for more. In fact, after that, I went and got more donuts. Yeah, these Reese's Pieces, I talked about it earlier in another podcast. I did it again after that podcast. I love Reese's Pieces, and I'll get like the family size Reese's Pieces bag. I'll have like three or four, and I'll throw the rest out the window. And then after that bag, sometimes I'll even go back and get more Reese's Pieces. So it's that whole diet thing that I've got to keep in check because the core principle that I believe behind that diet is garbage in, garbage out. If you're putting garbage foods in your body loaded with preservatives that are supposed to be able to sit on a grocery store shelf for 55 years and still be consumable after that time, that's not good for your body. I got way outside my comfort zone a couple weeks ago. There was an item on Amazon where you can make your own pasta out of zucchini or squash and you simply just crank it and it cranks out this little pasta squash. It's amazing. And I've been doing that almost daily. I make a juice. I got a juicer again. And then this is the diet stuff that I have to keep control of because it's the mental component that makes this whole recovery thing so much easier for me. When I'm eating like crap, getting out of bed on time, meeting with my sponsor, going to meetings, all that stuff, it's so much harder when mentally I'm just in a fog. And yeah, I just mentioned it. Another warning sign that an alcohol relapse is in my future is missing meetings. Recovery Elevator is not associated with any 12-step program or Alcoholics Anonymous. However, I'm a big fan. I got a sponsor, and I still go to meetings. I went to one this morning. But I find in my life, we get busy. 
And a lot of times when we're busy, it's the non-income producing things that tend to go away. Well, you know, I'm busy. I can only make one meeting a week. One meeting a week, it's not going to cut it, Paul. I'm talking to you right now, Paul. So listen to your own podcast, Paul. One meeting a week, it's not going to cut it. Another huge one for me. When I look back on my relapses, it's because I wasn't working out. Not because of vanity reasons. I'm not saying, oh, you didn't have big bicep muscles. Let's go ahead and drink. No, it was the mental component of working out. That's exercise, kind of the component with the diet, but the second half. It's the exercise part, getting those endorphins going in your brain that makes it so much easier for me to stay sober. And this stuff, a lot of times, has got to get scheduled in. And again, we get busy. Working out or a treadmill or running, unless you're Prefontaine or that guy Bolt from Jamaica, you're not going to make much money running and working out. But it pays heavily in dividends later down the road, which is a blind leap of faith, because mentally you'll be feeling so much better. Another large sign that a relapse is not distant in my future is the way I drink coffee. I can drink coffee alcoholically. We all know when we drink caffeine, we get that buzz. Sometimes I don't even realize it. I'm just always drinking coffee, probably one to two pots a day. That's like seven or eight cups maybe. Coffee, hate to say it to you, in large amounts, caffeine, shall I say, is actually poison to the body. One to two cups of coffee, sure, can actually help burn fat, and there have been other proven health benefits of drinking coffee, just like there have been proven health benefits to drinking red wine. But that's Gary, my damn addiction, talking to me in my voice. Paul, stop drinking five to seven cups of coffee a day. Paul, again, repeat, stop drinking so much coffee. Another warning sign that a relapse is in my future is I'm running with the wrong crowd. Now, if you hang out in your garage long enough, you're probably not going to turn into a car. But if you hang out with friends that just hang out in bars all the time and involve drinking and all of their activities, there's a good chance that sooner or later, Gary, the addiction is going to get in my head and be like, dude, these guys are cool. They're having a good time. It seems like they're drinking with impunity, Pablo. Let's give this another go. You know, the previous 812 times we drank, sure, we didn't really control it, but this is going to be different. Now, I have used this alcoholic friend filter, which is a blessing in disguise, and I filtered out all the friends that aren't really true friends. The friends that I have that drink, they're normal drinkers. They're great people. If I'm out to eat with these guys or we're at a bar watching a game, they always get a soda water with a splash of crayon and a lime for me. They're awesome guys. But I got to be aware of that. I can't hang out with these guys five nights a week, seven nights a week doing the same stuff. I have to develop my RNG, my recovery network group. And Recovery Elevator, got to thank you for helping me out with that. I sometimes find myself 45 minutes to an hour deep hanging out in the Recovery Elevator private accountability group. It's just awesome stuff. So thank you for that, guys. And a core concept behind that, which we've all heard before, but we really don't want to believe it. Well, actually, we probably do believe it. We just don't want to believe the type of crowd we're hanging out in is you're the average of the five people that you hang out with. And I firmly believe that. Now, we can't control the five people we hang out with the most, but we can choose who we hang out with the most. So that's one of those tough decisions you got to make. Get RE, get real with yourself and say, look, the five people I'm hanging out with the most, they are not going in the direction of life that I want to go in. It's time to make a split. And you don't got to do all five at once. Maybe just ditch the one at the bottom 
and put somebody on the top. All right, and here is a large warning sign that an alcohol relapse could happen for me in the future. And this is embarrassing to say. I wanted to leave this one off the list, but I gotta put it on if I'm gonna put it all out there and walk the walk that I'm talking. Is nicotine, AKA for myself, not the form of cigarettes, but chewing tobacco. About a month ago, I was at a campfire up in the mountains and the guy next to me had a can of chewing tobacco. Copenhagen, Skull, don't really know. And the gentleman didn't even really ask. He was just holding it out like it's a nice thing to do. In Montana, there are a lot of guys who chew tobacco. And so before I could answer, that dude Gary, my addiction, instantly reached his hand out, which was my hand, grabbed a tiny bit of snuff, as they call it on the street, and I put a chewing tobacco in my lower left lip. I imagine, not from firsthand experience, but that stuff tasted like sawdust that a rat had pissed on. It was terrible. But sure enough, after like two or three minutes, my stomach started to feel queasy. And overall, I started to feel like shit. wanted to throw up, but my head was kind of in a different spot. It was like this out-of-head experience, shall I say. And I wasn't feeling the emotions that I currently was feeling before, whether it be good or bad. And that was about a month ago. And the next day, you know what I did? Or I'm going to blame this on you, Gary. Damn it. We're driving down the road, pulled into a gas station. I bought a can of Copenhagen Long Cut Wintergreen. Yeah, I'm 33 years old and I'm starting chewing tobacco. Right now, Recovery Elevator, do me a solid. Send me a virtual slap. A virtual kick in the ass. Do it. Info at recoveryelevator.com. Email it to me. In the subject line, just put slap. That's all I need to see. And I'll just be like, boom, I just got virtual slapped from somebody I've never met. I got to quit chewing tobacco. And the way that I'm doing the chewing tobacco is the same way that I used to drink. I'd get a whole bottle of vodka, make myself one or two very stiff drinks, drink it, and start feeling really guilty. And I dumped the entire bottle down the drain. Well, guess what happened in about 30, 40 minutes? I drove back and bought another bottle. So with this chewing tobacco, I did the same thing. I would do like one or two dips, look at it. Paul, what the fuck are we doing? But in reality, I'm saying, Gary, God damn it. You got me again, but I got you beat chewing tobacco. I haven't had a dip for over four days because I got this stuff called nicotine gum. Take that. Yeah, again, recovery elevator. Now I'm doing nicotine gum to quit the chewing tobacco. So that's where I'm at. Nicotine gum. Oh, this damn addiction thing. You get the point. So I've got to be cognizant all the time of these very small, minute details that make up my recovery. Because like any successful corporation, marriage, football team, sports team, whatever, it's not the big things. A lot of times it's the things that appear on the surface so infinitesimally small that they don't matter, but it's all those small decisions that make up our entire recovery portfolio. And now let's hear from our interviewee, Douglas. Douglas, how are you? Uh, doing great. How are you doing, Paul? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining us, Douglas. First question, how long have you been sober? I've been sober for about two and a half years. I'm coming up on three years. Congratulations. And Douglas, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age. Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? Yeah, I'm a visual artist from Asheville, North Carolina. And like I said, I've been in recovery about three years. 
I'm married. My partner and I just got married a couple of weeks ago, actually. I'm a full-time artist. That's not been my total career. I was a graphic designer by trade for most of my career until that ended when I was drinking. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Other than that, I, I sort of mainly work on my project and paint most of the time. Sure. And listeners, you guys are in for a treat because I found out about Douglas through the incredible work he's doing with his project called Hello, My Name Is. This project, his mission statement, bluntly says, let's put faces with recovery. Douglas, I am extremely interested to hear more about this project, and we're going to get to that project at the end of the interview. But first off, I want to hear your story, my man. Are you ready to share a little bit about your story and and how you decided to quit drinking? Yeah, I stopped drinking sort of a, like I'd burned through um, all my relationships. You know, I was sort of isolated, living alone. I broke up with my partner. I was sort of drinking every day at that point. Sure. But how, how it all started, I was just sort of a casual drinker. I really didn't drink till I was in my mid-20s, went off to college, sort of. It just sort of fell into drinking. I mean, I come from a really long line of alcoholics. My my parents were alcoholics, and I just said that that would never be me. And so my early 20s, even in my teen years, I never drank. And then come when I was about 22, 23, I started drinking. And, you know, I really didn't say that I had a problem because I was still able to go to class. I still was able to hold a job. And and that just really wasn't an issue. Then in my 30s, I really started to ramp up. I I started drinking. Yeah, I really started to drink heavily. I had a great job. I had a group of friends that drank, and and I sort of surrounded myself with with people that were like me. I worked at an advertising agency, and it was okay to drink after hours. And a lot of times, we would be working on a project, and you know, someone would make a beer run. Yeah, I've seen Mad Men, and there's there's a lot of drinking in that industry. Yeah, and you know, it was sort of frowned upon if you didn't, you know, you were, you're not being part of the uh, the group if if you didn't drink. And and I can remember giving people a hard time because I didn't drink, and you know, and it just sort of escalated from there. I was 35, traveling with work, drinking constantly, but nothing really bad happened. A group of my friends were sort of going through the motions of getting the DUIs and all the bad things that comes along with it towards the end. And But I just thought that, ah, that's never going to happen to me. And when I turned 40, my luck ran out. I got my first DUI. And I worked in a corporate environment and having to go tell my boss that, oh, I'm going to not be driving for a while and travel is going to be a problem. You you would think that that would be a wake-up call that I needed, but it really wasn't. I I just didn't think it was the drinking. <laughs> it was um, the driving that was the problem. Yeah, exactly. It was everyone else's problem. You know, it was the stress, and it was just not my problem. The drinking had nothing to do with it. So I hired an attorney and got that sort of put to bed fairly painlessly, you know. I still had my driver and privileges. Once once the dust sort of settled down a little bit, you know, it's sort of able just to buy my way out of it because I had plenty of money and it was it was no big thing. And as long as I've got the work produced, you know, no one really said anything. 
it sort of made me drink sort of even more. I was just more secretive about it. I didn't, I didn't drink at office functions. You know, I, I sort of just try to sort of pull away and sort of isolate at that point. And still just drinking more and more and more. It, towards yeah. the end, it, I was drinking every, every day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 3 o'clock would come, and I would just be just antsy, just climbing the walls, waiting for time to leave. And I would often you know, leave work early or say I was going to to the studio and, and I'd be off to the bar or they would call and I'd be at the bar. Sure. I, and that's what I did for a long time. It just got to where I just would not be in the office. I had a uh, position to where I traveled a lot and I sort of controlled that. So I would be out on the road most of the time and just really um, the controller uh, of what I did from the day to day. And I just kept a low profile, did not sort of engage. And that just sort of isolated me more because I was on the road in a hotel room. No one really sort of knew what I was doing. And I would just drink. I would be at the bar every day at 4 o'clock. You were not really accountable to anybody? No. Just, uh, you know, as long as the work was produced, no questions were asked. Douglas, and, I love how you use the word the dust settles because I got a DUI in 2014 and I welcomed it. And when it happened, I was like, finally, something that is going to make me, force me to quit drinking. And within two, three weeks, the dust settled. And guess what I was doing again? I was drinking and driving. Now, now, Douglas, let's let's talk a little bit about the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. When did you decide, I know we're getting to it there, but when did you decide to get off that elevator? Was it a certain you know event that happened, or did you just, were you just sick and tired of being sick and tired? Yeah, and that, that's really what it boiled down to. Towards the end there, I was sort of, I kept saying, if I could just get my head on straight, you know, <laughs> if I could just, yeah, you know, but I was drinking. I was just drinking, and I, I was on this constant sort of hangover that, that I just couldn't shake because I would get up and be on the location by nine, but I was drinking by three every day. So I really never sobered up Uh for two years. I drank like that. And, you know, finally everybody had had, my partner had had enough and we split up. I was just drinking into blackouts every day and I was just done. Then I got my second DUI and that was just like, I've had it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. The second DUI, I was really depressed, and I was just drinking to, to not feel anything. So that was really is what made me sort of be like, uh, you know, I probably have a problem. I was suicidal. Even when I went into treatment for that and came out, I, it took me three months to sort of figure out it was the drinking. And it's another six months once I even made it into the rooms even say that that I had a problem with alcohol. So it wasn't this big something happened and I decided one day that it, that it was the alcohol. It took me a long time drinking to, to sort to, of face it. Yeah, what you said with drinking to not feel just the everyday emotions, it, that is textbook to what I did in 2014. I was driving to work. We're talking like 4.45 in the afternoon. I'm not drinking with anybody. It's not glamorized. I'm not at a party around chips and dip at a bar chatting with cute girls. I'm by myself drinking to work just so I'm not feeling the everyday emotions. I know exactly how that feels, and it's miserable. And Douglas, 
When at the end, before you decided to quit about two and a half years ago, did you ever try to moderate or put some like ingenious plans in place how to control your drinking? <laughs> oh god, yeah. Every every day it was like I'm gonna go to the bar and have two drinks. Uh, it was it was a running joke that oh yeah, because I always uh, went to the same place every every day. And I had, no matter what city I was in, I had my usual places that I drank. And I'd be like, ah, I'm just here for a drink. And then I'd be like, yeah, right. Because I would close the bar down every time I, you know, or I would have one drink, go to dinner, and then come back. That, that was a lot of mine, too. It was like, well, I had one drink, but I'm back. You know, the, the controlled drinking never worked out for me. You know, people call me on it all the time. Yeah, and and what was it like at the end with relationships? Did anybody ever tell you they're like, "Look, Douglas, you're at the set and you're blacked out. I think you're drinking too much." Did drinking ever affect your relationships? And did people ever say you're drinking too much, Douglas? Yeah, my partner uh, at the time, he was the first one that sort of said to me, "I think that you're an alcoholic." And I, I mean, this is two, three years before I I was blacking out. We we were uh, seeing each other long distance, but I would call him crazy drunk, and you know, just that whole emotional roller coaster that you're on, everything is sort of distorted, and just the day to day living is, is a hard thing when you're drinking all the time. I mean, it's just you're on this emotional roller coaster. You have these really, really big highs, and then you get depressed, and you know, for me, it was you know I couldn't have a relationship with anyone. I mean, it was a constant argument about some cra- something crazy. So I just mainly sort of started isolating, cutting people off and shutting down. Yeah. Yeah, that was me at the end, just totally by myself. Even when I got out of the treatment center, it was three months for me to, to actually be able to go outside my apartment. I would go to my uh therapy sessions, but that's the only place I would go. Uh, I walked out of treatment, and I was still sort of not sort of sober yet, and I was just just trying to get my head on straight, and but I still couldn't see that I was, you know, that alcohol was a problem. I still couldn't see the effects of it. I, I didn't leave my apartment for three months. I just isolated and stayed in, in my apartment. I wasn't drinking then, but I still the effects of it were still lingering for a long time. It took me about six months to sort of actually face that I had a really problem with alcohol and that that was the that was it. That that was what was happening. Yeah, Douglas and, and here's my favorite part where I get to learn from interviewees. This is the best question. So you had your drinking portfolio, but let's talk about your recovery portfolio. I'm interested to know how you did it because you've got two and a half years of sobriety. What you've done is very difficult to do. How did you do it? I know you went to treatment, but just walk us through how you got to two and a half years. Yeah, after I left treatment, you know, I didn't make it into the rooms. I I just sort of was still isolated. I didn't really want to face you know, I still was on the fence about, well, is, is it really the alcohol? And, and it's crazy. So part of my uh, court sort of situation was that I had I had to attend meetings. So I put that off for as long as I could. But, you know, at the end of the day, I had to go to so many meetings during, during the course of the week. And I would go, but I would sort of never make it in. I would drive to the place. <laughs> 
watch a couple of people go in, yeah. but I could never get out of I could never get out of the car and go in. And then it finally one day I, I just didn't have any more time. I had to go in to get my paper signed so that I was in compliance. And so I made it into the rooms. It was really weird for me at first. I hated going, but for some reason I felt better. I just it was just something that clicked about it. I just felt better when I left. And it just took a little bit of time to to sort of, I kept coming back and going to meetings. And then one day I, I decided to get a sponsor. And, okay. you know, A, he's not for everybody, but for me it worked out and uh, I'm grateful for it. And that's how I got sober. Nice. And, you know, I've always been a little bit of a critic about how AA works with the court systems. They have to get court papers signed, but there is a small percentage when they walk in, they get their court papers signed that they take the, they take the cotton out of their ears and they're listening. Do you think if it hadn't been for the court saying you have to get these papers signed that A, you might not be sober and B, you never would have gone to AA? I wouldn't have never gone to AA. Never, never would have done it. I just would not do it. Had I not been ordered to go, I would still be drinking now. You know, even three months in, it was hard for me to sort of say, yes, I have a drinking problem. And knowing, I mean, I hear my story every time that I went, but I was just in, I was just really in denial about it. I, I just could not face it. And once I did sort of figure out, oh, okay, you know, this is my problem, just surrendering to that made mm-hmm. all the difference in the world because I finally was sleeping at night. The, when I was in active addiction, I I wouldn't sleep. Like prior to me going into treatment and get my second DUI, I would sleep maybe a couple hours a night and I'd be awake. You know, I drank myself to sleep just so I could sleep. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'd be up drinking just to try to go back to sleep and be drunk in the morning at six o'clock and trying to sober up before I went to the office. So I always just thought that I was stressed out and I needed another job for a long time. Yeah. And listeners, this is part of my recovery portfolio is listening to the interviewees and doing recovery elevator because Douglas, when you were saying that you're sleeping two hours a night, you, you got a drink to go to bed. You wake up at six. You, you can't sleep without alcohol. I was getting the chills. And for a moment there, I was like gripping the desk thinking like, I got to do more podcast episodes because I can't go back there. I need to keep working on my recovery portfolio. And there is a really cool thing that you are doing, which is, I imagine, a large part of your recovery portfolio as well that has garnered some national attention. And what you're doing is you are literally painting, you are putting faces with recovery. And this is a project called Hello My Name Is, or the Hello My Name Is Project. Now, Douglas, can you take it from here and explain to us what this project is all about? Yeah, the the Hello My Name Is Project is a collection of portraits and personal recovery stories from people that are in addiction. And it's not focused on the the drunk-a-log or the the history behind the drinking, it's, it's mainly focused on the positive effect of recovery and how that has changed their lives and sort of made, made a better life for not only them, but their families and the community. Now, Douglas, you have a quote in, in a newspaper article or an online article that somebody did about you that recovery is not an anchor, it's a pair of wings. Tell me more about that. 
Yeah, that that's actually picked up from Tim from Sober Nation. He had said that in a in an article, and that's where that line originated. But it was so freeing for me because a lot of this was I felt trapped. Even in recovery, I still felt trapped by my addiction. And, you know, working through this project and seeing the anonymous people and and just sort of that whole sort of stigma associated with that, that, that statement just resonates for me. And someone used it uh, when they were in the interview because it's a tag on my, uh, it's on my email. It's, I use it as a tag on my email. I love it. And where did you get the idea for this? It says a little bit about the anonymity that recovery is shrouded in anonymity and we live dual lives. Did that spark this idea? Well, yeah. The idea started was when I was probably 18 months sober and I was going into town uh, for meetings every morning and I would run into people that sort of knew me because I live in a sort of small town and they'd be like, well, what are you doing around town at this hour? Are you running? You don't look like you're running. And I would be like, <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, so I'm, I'm just sort of fumbling around. What do I tell these people? Because, I, you know, I felt sort of ashamed by it. And, you know, I didn't want anyone to know I was in recovery. And so I would just sort of try to be invisible. Uh, you know, if I saw someone out, I always tried to sneak around and not get caught in town in the morning. And then I saw the anonymous people, and that really was sort of a liberating for me. Great and, movie. Great movie. Yeah, so I, I saw that, and I knew. I'd been looking for a portrait series for a few months, a year or so, and I'd been, um, uh, Asheville has a lot of great characters around town. So, you know, there's a lot of street performers, and uh, I work a little bit with the homeless. So I tried all these, but I never really could connect with the work. It, there was just something missing. Um, but like I said, I saw the anonymous people, and right then I knew that that's what the subject matter was going to be. And it took about a few months to sort of hash out what it sort of looks like, the verbiage for the positioning statements and stuff yeah. like that. But mainly the core idea came from when I saw the anonymous people. So talk to me about how this project, the, the Hello My Name Is project, how does that correlate with your recovery portfolio or your, your recovery in general? Is it a large part of your recovery or is it like 90% AA, 10% Hello My Name Is project? The, the Hello My Name Is project is a really a big portion of my own recovery because when I was drinking, that's the only way I could really relate to people. It was the only way I would, you know, at bars, that's, that is what I, um, you know, would be. I, I, my quote was, what's your story? That was my icebreaker. Just talk to people at the bar. <laughs> and, yeah, I know it's crazy. But that was how I sort of talked. And I was going to do, you know, when I was drinking, I had this whole idea of doing a blog series about people that I met on the road. And, you know, being in active addiction, things like that really never happened. Yeah, I know. So I just had this, like, like I said, I've been kicking around this whole sort of portrait series for a long time. And, you know, I could never sit down and ha have a conversation with someone, a personal conversation without a drink in my hand. And through this, this uh, project, it's allowed me to sort of force myself in sort of being open and being 
you know, present with people and making those connections. Uh, A big part of my recovery when I first came in was about making that network of people in recovery, finding those people that have some years on them. That's it. And try to sort of, you know, connect with them because they are going to get you out of the tight spot. You know, they are going to have the knowledge that, that, that you need to sort of get sober. And I just sort of connected with some really core people that, that I still stay in touch with and have that call with. For me, that's what's been the lifesaver for me is, is having that network of people. How do we find out about this project? What's the website? Can we find you on Facebook? Do you have Twitter? The, the website is hmni.org, and I have a Facebook page as well. It's Hello, My Name is Project on Facebook, and the Twitter account's the same thing. It's Hello, My Name is Project. So for those of you guys out there, that's hellomynameis.org, so hmni.org. Now, do you put out like, you know, for example, I do one podcast episode a week, holds me accountable in my recovery do you do like a portrait a week, a portrait a month, or do you just let that brush fly when you feel like it? Well, it's all about getting people to sign up and do, you know, because all of these people not only are, you know, just sitting for a portrait, they're sharing their story as well. So, you know, you have to sort of actively recruit people to come in and share their story. You know, and I shoot the source material, so I shoot a portrait and I draw from a uh, photograph. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a process. And, you know, I tend, I can do about 30 a year. Uh-huh. That That's sort of, you know, with the promotional materials and the shows and things like that. It's it's about, I, I'm, I'm hoping to do 30 more this year. I just had a show in September and I showed 20. Douglas, at this time, we have reached the rapid fire round. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Here we go. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? The hangovers. You know, just being in that constant sort of blur and days and confused state most of the time. Days and confused. Great movie. Bad state of mind. Number two. Douglas, what's your plan in sobriety? So, for example, what does that recovery portfolio look like moving forward? Now that I've been sober, my head sort of cleared, you know, now is really sort of focusing my energy on putting my life back together and sort of building off of a, now that I have sort of a base for a life, you know, starting to rebuild my life again. Douglas, what's your favorite resource in recovery? I would have to say AA is really a great resource for me. I do a lot of, uh, I go to a lot of meetings. I try to do a lot of service work in the community. So, you know, following AA for me really works out and, you know, that's just how I've done it. Next up, Douglas, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Staying focused on what's in front of you rather than sort of trying to do things that are usually in my head, oh, if this happens, or, you know, just sort of making sure that I'm present in the moment and handling what needs to be taken care of right right at the moment, not something that needs to be done down the line. An acronym that I like is follow one course until success, which basically is focus spelled out. Last question, Douglas, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or are in early recovery? 
you know, like I said, for me, just that that core sort of list of people that you could sort of connect with that's been in recovery, you know, that I think that is so hard because we feel so isolated in the addiction and then we finally, you know, get sober to isolate again as we're just back in the same sort of environment that we were trying to get out of. Last up, Douglas, now it's time for you to give us your own personalized, you might be an alcoholic if. You got one for us? Uh, yes, if you open the car door and more beer bottles fall out than you do. <laughs> you might be an alcoholic if when you open up your car door, more beer bottles fall out than you do. I love it. Douglas, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, and thanks for helping me stay sober. Great. Thank you so much. You might be an alcoholic if you wake up on a business trip for a new job, traveling with your new boss, unsure how you got to your hotel room, and the next day you find pictures on your phone of a guy with a giant yellow snake that you swear you've never seen. And that one's from Kelly. Next up, I love this one. You might be an alcoholic if you called the city recycling center to ask if there are covers for your recycling bins so the neighbors won't see the amount of alcoholic beverages in the recycling bins. We've got a green alcoholic out there. I love it. This next one, pretty simple but straightforward. You might be an alcoholic if you drank anything that contained alcohol. And that one's from Lister. Next up, you might be an alcoholic if you say hurtful things to people that you love. And that's from just an anonymous husband. Next up, you might be an alcoholic if you enter all drinking contests, especially if you're in the United Kingdom where you simply feel you owe it to America to partake in this drinking contest. That one's from Pete. And this last one's from Joy. You might be an alcoholic if you promise your kids you'll stop drinking at a kid's birthday party, only to sneak out five minutes later because you're so tired and drunk that you just want to sleep in your own bed and take a nap. If you've got a you might be an alcoholic if, let us know. Email me at info at recoveryelevator.com. We'll get it on for you. Before we close out the podcast episode today, like I had mentioned previously, there is a recovery elevator dance. It's still in its works, but I've got a YouTube channel packed full with two videos. And I think they're each about 50 seconds each. So a full two minutes of quality content. <laughs> it's a work in progress. Let's put it that way. Also a work in progress, my recovery. Not perfect, but it's progress and not perfection. So go to YouTube, just search recovery elevator. The dance Part one, I'm actually going to do the dance. It's me explaining the dance. It's basically you're on the elevator. Your hand reaches out. You're like, I'm done. I'm getting off. I'm stopping drinking. And then your hand just goes back into your pocket. And then when shit really gets bad again, you're about to touch that button because it's just so bad, that drinking thing. You put your hand back in your pocket. And we do this on like, oh, getting off. Nope. Oh, I'm good. Oh, no, no. We do that dance over and over and over. And that's the recovery elevator dance. But just hit the button. Get off the elevator. I know it's hard. I've done it. But it's great when you get here. Recovery elevator. You took the elevator down. Stop doing the dance. Hit that button. Get off. You got to take the stairs back up.